Ready, David. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free. Thank you for reminding us of what sanctification is, how you view it, not just how we view it, how we might meddle with it, but rather thank you for letting us understand and giving us the time and your divine patience to understand what Scripture has to say about this very thing, sanctification. We are most grateful and thankful for that cross 2,000 years ago that began this sanctification in us. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Part 36 of the Gospel, Salvation and Sanctification. Hopefully you've been... um, paying attention to the big picture because that's where he's had us focused. We've been sort of perusing a lot of scripture. Tonight's not going to be any different. Um, So keep your eye on the big picture as we sort of go through the gospel, salvation, and sanctification. So speaking of the big picture, the big picture item the Spirit's been kicking off our lessons with as of late has been that we creatures are accountable to a perfectly just and righteous sovereign God. We are accountable to this God, the God of the universe, and he's perfectly just and righteous, uh, and he's sovereign. That reality is what fuels the English word fear in the Bible, as we've learned in the past. Go to Proverbs 14.1. Proverbs 14.1. So the fact that he's sovereign, and the more that we understand what his sovereignty means to us, or to we, we believers, the more we fear him. Of course, the term fear includes the concept of respect, um, but we have to sort of live in that reality that we are under a sovereign God. Proverbs 14.1, the wise woman builds her house, But the foolish tears it down with her own hands. I could probably teach a month on that. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. He who walks in his uprightness fears the Lord. Fears the Lord. He who walks in his uprightness fears the Lord. So that echoes, obviously, of Romans 1.17, which we'll get back to this evening. The righteous man lives by faith. Well, uprightness is you know, sort of a um, very similar term as righteousness, and that righteous man that lives by faith, this same righteous person, fears the Lord. So he who walks in his uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is devious in his ways despises him. In the mouth of the foolish is a rod for his back, but the lips of the wise will protect them. Where no oxen are, the manger is clean, but much revenue comes by the strength of the ox. A trustworthy witness will not lie, but a false witness utters lies. A scoffer seeks wisdom and finds none, but knowledge is easy to one who has understanding. Leave the presence of a fool, or you will not discern words of knowledge. The wisdom of the sensible is to understand his way, but the foolishness of fools is deceit. Fools mock at sin, but among the upright there is goodwill. The heart knows its own bitterness, and a stranger does not share its joy. The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Even in laughter the heart may be in pain and the end of joy may be grief. The backslider in heart will have his fill of his own ways, but a good man will be satisfied with his. The naive believe everything, but the sensible man considers his steps. A wise man is cautious and turns away from evil, but a a fool is arrogant and careless. A quick-tempered man acts foolishly, and a man of evil devices is hated. The naive inherit foolishness, but the sensible are crowned with knowledge. 
The evil will bow down before the good, and the wicked at the gates of the righteous. The poor is hated even by his neighbor, but those who love the rich are many. He who despises his neighbor sins, but happy is he who is gracious to the poor. Will they not go astray who devise evil? But kindness and truth will be to those who devise good. In all labor there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. The crown of the wise is their riches, but the folly of fools is foolishness. A truthful witness saves lives, but he who utters lies is treacherous. In the fear of the Lord, and again, that's the reason we're reading Proverbs 14, is the sake of amplifying fear. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence, and his children will have refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, that one may avoid the snares of death. In a multitude of people is a king's glory, but in the dearest, the dark, excuse me, of people is a prince, a prince's ruin. He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. A tranquil heart is life to the body, but passion is rottenness to the bones. He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him. The wicked is thrust down by his wrongdoing, but the righteous has a refuge when he dies. Wisdom rests in the heart of one who has understanding, but in the hearts of fools it is made known. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. The king's favor is toward a servant who acts wisely, but his anger is toward him who acts shamefully. So the Bible has a lot to say about the fear of God. If you read that again on your own time, you'll see that the fear of God is a centerpiece of Proverbs 14. And so the Bible really does have a lot to say about the fear of God. And as I said, uh, what precipitates fear really is the simple fact that God is sovereign and that we are accountable to him. So there's God's sovereignty, our accountability. We fear God because we have an acute awareness of his authority over us. It is implicit. It is absolute. Again, God's sovereignty, our accountability. We fear God because we have an acute awareness of his authority over us. It is implicit. It is absolute. And he has every uh, ability, being omnipotent, to affect um, any form of justice in our lives. And in that sense, he's sovereign and uh, righteous um, in doing so, regardless of what his justice demands of a situation. So we know all these things, and because we know all these things, and we know that his sovereignty is righteous, we fear him because we have an acute awareness of his authority over us. It is implicit, it is absolute. And here's the thing coming off of the gospel, that's very good news um, to a humble person. The point on the board is very good news to a humble person. A humble person doesn't have any problems with authority orientation, and they live a happier life, a more peaceful, content life as a result. It's the person, it's the believer who has problems with authority that is constantly bucking or subclio, kicking against the net, and the noose, if you would, is tightening over time. And they continue in their sort of uh, disregard for God's authority uh, in their life. So it's very good news to a humble person that God's sovereignty exists, that he has authority over us, and also that he delegates authority. Obviously, you're listening to one right now. Uh, All of his authority in view, including his uh, delegated authority. Uh, All of that, though, is good news to a humble person just knowing that we have an all-powerful God watching over our souls, well, that's comforting. Amen? To have an all-powerful God watching over our souls, well, that's very comforting, as David said in that famous psalm, Psalm 23. You know, the Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 23, 4, part C, your rod, which we've studied in the past in great detail, is a reference to discipline. Your rod and your staff, of staff is reference to his guidance, they comfort me. 
In other words, the whole integrity of God, the sovereignty, the authority of God, again, to affect any form of justice in our lives, uh, that's very comforting. And so a humble person, David was very humble, a humble person sees these things as comforting, even knowing that if you screw up, you might get disciplined even harshly. That, in effect, is comforting as well, because that proves that he's not a weak God. He's a God of integrity, and that's what you want at the end of the day, because you're really depending on his promises, aren't you? How about the big one? Are you, do you have eternal life? Well, if you can't depend on all of them, then you can't depend on, or if you can't depend on some of them, then you can't depend on all of them. So you really want a balanced um, God of integrity. And so, as David says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So in humility, we are comforted by the sovereignty of God and that we are accountable to him. Therefore, to drive this home a little further, relative to the whole gospel, the first part then of the good news is that we are held accountable to a God of perfect integrity. We are held. That's very good news. Okay, with that said, go back to Romans 1. Romans 1.16. So that's how we've kick-started each lesson now for oh, going on two weeks almost. On the sovereignty of God. And it has everything to do not just with the gospel, but also in this sanctification proper that we've been studying out. That he's sovereign, he's righteous, he's just, and going about it. We looked at righteousness, the Kayasune, remember. Uh, we looked at the word righteousness, how there's uh, three general uses for it. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power, dunamis, of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. I was thinking in secular language when a person says they want to live, you know, I want to live, I want to live it up. I want to be able to live my life. Isn't it implied that they really want to enjoy a certain freedom? When someone says, I want to live, don't they, isn't it implied that they're trying or they're implying some form of freedom? Well, that's a similar concept in the Bible. So to live righteously is to be free, is to live in that sense of freedom that Galatians 5.1 speaks about, uh, that Christ set you free to live. A helper in that perspective is this victory in Jesus. The more of the uh, big picture you see, the more free you will be. And so he's been spending an awful lot of time. I would say that this ministry as a whole, truth be told, has been imparting um, the big picture. One of the primary themes of this ministry has been to impart the big picture to you. Uh, there's multiple ways to skin a cat, as you know. Uh, you can go bottoms up, start with details and go up, or you can go top down, start with big picture down. And for whatever reason, he's had us on big picture down uh, for quite some time. It's been exceptionally well received by everyone here, and not that it matters, but it's nice to hear that people are enjoying seeing the big picture, and as a result, they're being set free. And I believe wholeheartedly that that is certainly one of the great themes of this particular ministry. The more of the big picture you see, the more free you will be. So then, what's the problem? I mean, shouldn't I just be able to say, okay, guys, here it is, there's the point, let's go home. No, what's the problem then? Why doesn't everyone simply sit back and relax in the freedom in which Christ set them free to enjoy? I mean, why isn't it that simple, in other words? Why isn't every believer, you know, living the dream, as they say? I mean, you know, what gives? What gives? What does the miserable believer say to themselves when they read the likes of 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, 18? What does the miserable believer say to themselves when they read the likes of 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. 
Go to 1 Thessalonians 5.16. I saw Monica's pen moving. That must have been for the, supposed to be they, correct? Yep. I'll be getting an email tonight. Greg, you ready? You'll be getting an email. This is what happens when I screw up. I get hate email from my secretary. <laughs> then if I use it multiple times, it's like, I already told you about this one. Why is it back up there again? <laughs> Just testing. That's how I test her. What does the miserable believer say to themselves when they read the likes of 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18? I mean, who hasn't... All right, raise your hand if you haven't been miserable at some point in the past, last year, 2015. I mean, come on, right? Scott, put your hand down. Scott's like, I'm always chipper, look at me. Everybody has days, right? Sometimes weeks, sometimes even months, unfortunately. Um, where you're miserable and there's really no, given the promises of God, what gives? Like, what gives? So if you're miserable, what, what do you say to yourself when you read 1 Thessalonians 5.16? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. What about 1 Thessalonians 5.16? How do you rejoice always if you're miserable? How does that work? And what's going on? And those are the sort of poignant questions we should ask ourselves. What about when we're miserable? Because when we're miserable, we shouldn't be miserable. There must be some perspective that we're missing. And that's the beauty of perspective, right? It takes that long. Literally that long. To change perspective in your perspective, you can go from miserable to contentment in a heartbeat. Just by the change of perspective. Maybe it's your friend uh, or, you know, a loved one, or maybe it's the pulpit. You come and you get reminded of a certain scripture or a certain perspective, and that's the end of your misery for a time. So what gives anyways? Um, furthermore, how does one reconcile such scripture would say, go to 2 Timothy 3.12. So on one hand, you have, you know, Paul's writing, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. I don't want to pray right now. I don't feel like praying right now. But there it is in Scripture. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. I don't want to give thanks. I'm grumpy. Right? Anthony? Yeah, see? So how do you reconcile that with, say, 2 Timothy 3.12? Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ will be what? Persecuted. All right, so here we go. So now we have like two somewhat contradictory things. Somewhat. Indeed, all who desire to live godly, you know, Paul says in Romans 1.17, the righteous shall live by faith. That's godliness in a nutshell. But if you live by faith, then what are we saying? You're going to be persecuted? Persecuted is not fun, necessarily. You may have the opportunity or the ability to kind of bring in, sow a little misery. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Again, how do we reconcile such things up here on the board? What does the miserable believer say to themselves when they read the likes of 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18 up here on the board? As a reminder, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So you get a lot of people that say, Jeez, I've been sticking it out, and all I'm getting is I'm paying hell for this. I'm, all I'm being is persecuted. I'm being made miserable, so to speak. How about go to James? He gives us a hand. Go to James 1, 2. How do we deal with this? It seems like a contradiction almost of terms. In one sense, the Bible's telling us to rejoice. In another sense, it's saying we're going to be under persecution. We're going to suffer. Well, James helps us out. I mean, we've all just agreed that, you know, regardless of whether it's right or wrong, we all share in some form of misery throughout our lives. We have bad days, bad weeks, or whatever. James 1, 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Okay, so what do you call that? That right there, my friends, is James introducing the big picture. If you're stuck in the moment, you're not going to find any joy. All you're gonna, the only joy you're going to be thinking about is punching your boss in the nose. 
or whoever's ir irritating you, right? Okay, maybe I'm the only violent person here, the violent aggressor in the group. This is how I deal with misery, obviously. What James is saying is big picture. Consider it all joy, not in the, necessarily in the trial. You know, as I wrote a blog one time, this too shall pass. Sometimes you just got to grit your teeth and get through it. Sometimes there's not a whole lot of scripture right there saying, oh, well, here's a solution. No, sometimes the scripture is buckle down. That's the scripture, and that's all there is to it. End of story. Sometimes the scripture just says, suffer through it. And you're like waiting for more scripture to somehow magically deliver you. But it's not there. There's not some magic scripture that's going to deliver you out of some jackass in your life. You're going to have to grin and bear it. You're going to have to grit your teeth and get through it. And the only way you can find joy in that time is to elevate to the big picture. Just like Jesus did when he carried his cross. So consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There's just some things, folks, that he has to build in you that require a little bit of misery and a little suffering. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And that's a good lesson for all of us when we're in that moment. And this has been coming up a lot in my personal chats with individuals, with Bible study. Look, if you're in a moment and you don't know of any actual scripture or any kind of quote-unquote particular out, then go to him, pray. Pray. How about that? Pray to God. In that moment, say, God, you know, I need your, I need your strength more than ever, obviously, in this moment, because I'm going to punch somebody in the nose. And I, I kind of need my job because I have a family, this kind of thing. Just saying. <laughs> if any of you lacks wisdom, in other words, I don't know what to do right now. I'm kind of cranky. I'm miserable. I don't know what to, I'm going to do something bad if I continue with this attitude I've got. If you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Go to God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. A lot of people don't think of prayer. It's the most powerful thing you've got in the moment, and a lot of people don't think about it. They do what I've historically done, grab the bull by the horns and wrestle with it. And self-sanctify. Try to control the situation with brute force. When all I had to do was maybe get down on my knees or close my eyes for a moment, count to ten, pray to God. Let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, that's the thing, without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. You can't say, you know, tomorrow when you're in, when you're being persecuted, well, I don't really feel like doing this, but, you know, that Pastor Ed guy, he said, go to you in prayer, so here I am, God. Let's see, come on, chop, chop. That's not exactly going to him in faith. He must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James helps those struggling by giving them perspective. That's wonderful perspective we just read, folks. Up here on the board, deliverance means being saved daily. Perspective is often the only relief a believer has available to them. God doesn't swoop down with his big old hand and take you out of a situation. Matter of fact, he likes to leave us in those situations, doesn't he? He likes to deliver us while we're in those situations. So oftentimes it's just perspective. And I don't know about you, but when I go to him in prayer and I'm in that kind of a need, that's exactly what he gives me. He goes, are you thinking about all angles to this? Are you just being a self-absorbed brat? It is possible I'm being a self-absorbed brat. (laughs) 
And he gives me a new perspective, and the next thing you know, I'm delivered. And I'm just sharing because I don't know how it goes in your life. By the looks of your faces, it goes very differently. <laughs> but Scripture's the same for you as it is for me. Perspective is often the only relief a believer has available to them. The Word gives us perspective, and the Spirit ensures us it is truth. Sometimes that's all we have. Sometimes there's no magical scripture that's going to pop up. But doesn't the, the Word says that the help is going to bring to remembrance the right scripture at the right time. Yeah, and there you have it already. Suffer. My son suffered. You suffer. Because there's a certain education that you're going to achieve by suffering. So why don't you... Quit being a brat. Quit being a little baby. Pick up your skirt and go through it because that's my will for you. And if you had the right perspective, you would have a joy set before you, something that transcends any physical, emotional uh, suffering. And that's the perspective he might give you. He might halt you in your tracks instead of praying that you don't choke someone. That whole line of thinking disappears with a simple change of perspective. Sometimes it's, do you know that God loves that person you want to choke just as much as he loves you? Do you know that? Do you know that God so loved the whole world, even the unbelievers, that he sent his son? Do you remember that? Sometimes that's all it takes, is something like that, for us to stop being self-absorbed and even possibly self-sanctifying. So deliverance means being saved daily. Perspective is often the only relief a believer has available to them. The Word gives us perspective, and the Spirit ensures us it is truth. Let's go to Peter's epistle for some additional encouragement on the seeming contradiction between living in freedom while suffering. Go to 1 Peter 4.1. 1 Peter 4.1. We saw some encouragement with... James and his epistle. How about Peter? First Peter four one. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. The end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit, for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. And a lot of times, that's that same perspective. Think about that. Do you remember that God loves that person you want to throttle just as much as He loves you? Just like the day before when they wanted to throttle you, He loved you just as much as He loved them? Sometimes it's just a perspective. Above all, keep fervent and look at right before that, the purpose of what? Prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Maybe that's what you should do. Maybe you should think about, uh, stop thinking about yourself and how people aren't serving you even though they maybe rightly should be, and maybe you should be focusing more on how you can serve others. 
As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. There's a big picture passage for you right there. Not all about you, my friend. It's about Him anyways. That's why you're still here. It's not to bring glory to yourself. It's to bring glory to Him. Verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Don't be surprised who attacks you, where the attacks come from. Again, that might be just God saying, Suffer, because I've got something I'm doing in you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. There you go. There's that sort of dichotomy, that contradiction. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. I think of the, uh, the early church, was, I think it was a couple of the apostles, they, they rejoiced when they got, uh, I think they had just been thrown in jail, I forget the exact account, but they got you know, let loose, cut loose, they got antagonized and persecuted, and they ran away, and they were like, that was awesome, let's go do this again. And that was basically verse 13. Keep on rejoicing in the sufferings of Christ, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of God, of, excuse me, of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. And verse 19 certainly echoes as to how we started this evening. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. That's what a sovereign, just, authoritative God does. We can entrust our souls to that person and uh, assume he'll do right. Up here on the board, again, perspective is often the only relief a believer has available to them. The Word gives us perspective and the Spirit ensures us it is truth. Sin, on the other hand, has a tendency to ruin a perfectly good perspective. And when we lose perspective, the door is opened to the influences of spiritual death. Now, we're delivered, positionally, we know this, from spiritual death. But the presence of sin and the effects of sin, which is spiritual death, are still influencing us. So sin has a tendency to ruin a perfectly good perspective. I wouldn't suggest you run out and do this on purpose, but maybe the next time you have a little run of sin, uh, think about how it has messed with your perspective. Think about how it has taken you away from eyes on Christ. And then what ensues? The, the promises of God are sort of stagnant at that point. If you're off running, doing something you're not supposed to be doing, and your perspective has changed from eyes on Christ to eyes on self or some other idol, as John said in 1 John 5, um, and your perspective has changed and all that good stuff, then you might suffer the influences of spiritual death. So this is why even well-intentioned believers can find themselves frustrated with life. It always, um, it's upsetting to hear it so often, to be honest with you, um, but it happens a lot that there are seemingly well-intentioned believers that are living what can only be called, I guess, a frustrated life. 
The reason is the presence of sin in and around our lives. We must seek deliverance then in the Word. And that's what Paul is saying uh, in a nutshell in Romans 1.17, that the righteous live by faith. Remember in 1 John 5.4 we saw on Tuesday, faith overcomes the world. The world is wrought with sin and evil, John 3.19-21. However, light always overcomes darkness. John 3.19, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Again, lose your perspective and you are open to infiltration. And that's what the Spirit's saying. Many times it's just an issue of big picture perspective. That joy set before you, understanding that He's trying to do a good thing in you, that it's on the other side of certain guaranteed suffering that you might grow, that you might find a more transcendent, faith-filled life, so to speak. So, again, lose your perspective and you are open to infiltration. Satan repeats lies over and over again until we think they are truth. Go to Isaiah 5.20 while everybody clears their throats and their noses and their seats and whatever else is going on. Just no other bodily functions, please. But go ahead and clear whatever's going on. Jeez, someone throwing dust in the air? What's going on here? I do appreciate you being here because I know some people that are coughing and gagging, they're sick. Or they're getting over their sicknesses and they're really just trying to, you know, get her done. As Mater would say. Anybody? No? Well, then go to Isaiah 520 then. Satan repeats lies over and over again until we think they're truth. We get sort of nabbed when we're not looking. And we lose the big... See, the beauty about having the big picture is that it's like a compass. It's, you're going in a direction. And if something doesn't jive with that direction... And you can think of it in a multitude of ways, you know, the love of God. Um, But big picture perspective gets you going in a direction. And when something doesn't jive with the direction, that's when a red flag goes off. Something says, wait a minute, something's not right here. That sounds like something, some garbage, or something that's being added to the Word of God, possibly, or subtracted, or, or maybe even completely uh, to the side. Isaiah 5.20, we know that Satan repeats lies over and over. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Satan will continue to repeat blatant lies, so that you too will begin to accept them as normal. So beware. And that was a principle from Tuesday evening's class. Normal, really? Beware, folks. Satan is going to try to get you to accept a new definition of normal. And if you don't stick with the Word of God, if you don't keep the right perspective, if you fall out of love with your first love, Jesus Christ, then you can lose your perspective. And the next thing you know, you're starting to believe the lies. The compass starts changing from true north to some counterfeit north. Next thing you know, he's got you steering over here, steering over here, and then steering over here. It only takes a couple of degrees, folks, for some period of time to end up in la-la land. So normal really Be careful what you accept into your soul as normal or acceptable. What those closest to you might be trying to pawn off as okay may quite possibly be heinous to God. 2 Corinthians 11, 13 and 15. We looked at uh, a uh, fictitious family example where there were three kinds of idols, you know, the whole nine yards. And that was 
pretty much everyone agreed that that example of that screwy family was now accepted as normal, even by Christians. I mean, you have some churches teaching that it's okay for homosexual marriage. What do you have to do to the inerrant scripture that stands, I mean, directly? It's not a, well, one person runs a church this way and one runs that way. You know, it's not like a church ordinance thing or, you know, angels with belly buttons and that kind of weird thing. This is in scripture. How do you actually throw that out? without any integrity. So, but when churches after church after church start saying, it's okay. It's 2016. God's okay with homosexual marriages. God's okay with women pastors. God's okay with this, all these little things that are actually directly stated in the Word of God. And, and everybody starts saying, okay, well, if you say it's okay, and you say it's okay, I guess I say it's okay. And everybody starts walking somewhere away from true north. And that's the very worst thing that can possibly happen. So normal isn't always normal as far as God is concerned. Normal isn't always, it might be normal, but it's not okay with God. So you have to actually have a healthy suspicion, and that's where the big picture comes into view. It keeps you headed towards true north. And it gives you a healthy sort of suspicion in your soul of things that might be going awry. Satan propagates a world system viewpoint that proclaims it is light when it is very much darkness. Remember this in the message, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, Satan does it all the time, dressing up as a beautiful angel of light. So it shouldn't surprise us when his servants masquerade as servants of God. I mean, anybody can build a wooden pulpit. Anybody can fund a church. Anybody can stand there and say, I'm a pastor. This is a Christian church. As far as I know, Oprah still says she's a Christian, which makes no sense whatsoever because she denounces Christ. So how does that work? But there they stand. I'm a Christian too. Really, how can you possibly be a Christian if you denounce Christ? And it's not just her. It's a lot of people who say, I'm Christian, but they say there's more than one way to get to heaven or to eternal life, but then through Jesus Christ. So I guess Jesus Christ then, Christian, was a liar. Because he said, nobody comes to the Father but through me. But see, if enough religions and enough ecumenical sort of posturing goes on, the weak people in the crowd begin believing it's okay. And it's not okay. This world is screwed up, people. I mean, it's, it's about 179 degrees away from Christ. I won't give it 180 because there's still some truth in there, but this world is messed up, people. I mean, it is messed up. And for some of us, unfortunately, we have these people in our families, in our periphery. We work for them. We work with them. We, we work over them sometimes. We have these people. This world is just... We're in it. So just what the Spirit's saying is just be careful who you listen to, especially those peddling various forms of religion. Religion proposing, of course, that man sanctify himself by himself for himself. Go to Colossians 1.16. Be careful who you listen to. Just be careful. Listen and read between the lines. Watch how Satan undermines the authority of God. Watch how he goes about doing that thing. Colossians 1.16 For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Amen? Amen. End of story. So, if that's the case, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, and all things are created through Him and for Him. Well, then it makes sense that it's His sovereign right to sanctify men. 
It doesn't. Only God can sanctify man. If you lose sight of the gospel, you will doubt this basic truth and adopt a form of self-sanctification eventually. Okay, go back now to Romans 1.16. Romans 1.16. Eventually, you will adopt self-sanctification if you lose sight of the gospel. Romans 1.16. For... I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now We're finally going to be able to get to that passage that we've run up to three times now, I believe, which is Romans 4. But before we do, it really pivots on this is revealed, this insight that he gave us on what does it mean a righteousness from God is revealed from faith to faith. refers to the unveiling of the fruit of the righteousness imputed to believers from God at salvation. God sanctifies then from faith to faith, for it is by faith that a man shall live as a Christian. Only through faith can righteousness be imputed by grace. This echoes now. Go to Romans 4.1. It's going to be completely anticlimactic, Scott. <laughs> really just talking about Abraham here. This is a passage we had gone to um, when we were talking about um, justification by faith right before this series. Again, only through faith can righteousness be imputed by grace, whether it's righteousness positionally or righteousness that we uh, produce as vessels of mercy. Uh, Both of these things are through faith by grace. So uh, Romans 4.1, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, he had faith in other words, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Again, faith is the channel. God graced him out with what? Righteousness. Abraham believed, had faith, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Again, only through faith can righteousness be imputed by grace. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is the blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Again, the point being amplified. Only through faith can righteousness be imputed by grace. Verse 10. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised but while uncircumcised. Right? Even, in other words, before he even became the first Jew, Abraham was saved because he had faith. And that faith was credited to him as righteousness. So Paul's just dispelling the idea that you, know, you have to be circumcised to be saved, which was something the Jews did. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. Paul's just basically saying, you don't get to self-sanctify. You don't get to give yourself a circumcision and then you are sanctified. That doesn't work at salvation. It doesn't work after salvation. There's no work that man can do. And he uses Abraham as a perfect example. Because the Jews said, well, Abraham was circumcised. You must be circumcised to be saved. And he's like, that's ridiculousness. He was saved before he was even circumcised. 
So stop trying to make it an issue about works. Stop trying to make a religion of self-sanctification because self-sanctification always implies religion and religion always replies salvation or deliverance by works. That's the separate parallel counterfeit path to grace and faith. Verse 13, For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is also no violation. For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, Jew and Gentile. Remember? As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which he had been spoken, or what had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. Therefore it, his faith, was also credited to him as righteousness. And hopefully you see the synergy between the two things. Look at it again, being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able to also perform. In other words, think of Philippians 1.6. He said, I guarantee I'm going to finish this thing I started in you. That's a promise. That's a promise. If you're saved, he's going to sanctify you. And that's it. And that's called faith. If you believe that, if you have that faith, then you have that faith. And nothing can stop that grace that can be poured out through that faith. And that grace imputes a certain righteousness to you. And that's all the point on the board is saying. Therefore, it, his faith was also credited to him as righteousness. Only through faith can righteousness be imputed by grace. In verse 23, let's just finish it up. Not for, now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Up here on the board. <clears throat> Faith and righteousness. What Paul is getting at, in Romans 1.17, when he says, this righteousness that we've received from God is revealed, is that it is revealed in such a way that faith is the channel for grace that sanctifies at salvation and beyond, a.k.a. from faith to faith. Again, what Paul is getting at in Romans 1.17, when he says, this righteousness that we've received from God is revealed in such a way that is revealed that faith is the channel for grace that sanctifies, that salvation and beyond, from faith to faith. In other words, when true faith exists in a believer, the grace of God is revealed. Stated more practically, God saves, delivers us at every phase of sanctification. That's what he's saying. He's saying this righteousness, God's righteousness is in view, but this righteousness that we've received is revealed from faith to faith. God saves, delivers us at every phase of sanctification. He gives us faith through which his grace is poured out. A believer lives by faith. And that in of itself is credited as righteousness. God saves, delivers us at every phase of sanctification. He gives us faith through which His grace is poured out. A believer lives by faith.
faith. And we've got some time left. This pattern is etched in stone at salvation. Go to Ephesians 2.8. Ephesians 2.8. It's the same pattern, folks. It started at your salvation. God saved you, right? By grace, through faith. And it wasn't you self-sanctifying. There was nothing you could do. And that's why we went to Romans 4. There was nothing the Jews could do. Circumcise themselves. There was nothing they could do to save themselves. Even Abraham wasn't saved by being circumcised. He was saved by faith. And that's all Paul's saying in Ephesians 2.8.9. He said, listen, this whole thing, all of it, no matter what sanctification you're talking about, and he didn't really carve it up that way anyways, it's always by grace through faith, so that it's not anything you can boast about. God sanctifies. God saves. God delivers. Always. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So if it's true that God saves us every day, then guess how He saves us every day? Guess how salvation or deliverance is accomplished every single day? By grace, through faith. And when we see that happening, from faith to faith, we realize the righteousness of God in sanctifying us. We also realize that He's given us a righteousness that we can see even in ourselves. We call it imputed righteousness. Or imparted, if you want to get really theological when you're talking about experiential sanctification. But I don't care if you get that in-depth with it. The idea is that it's always the same pattern. It's by grace through faith. And when that happens, with even with the great theatron, with the angels watching, when he's able to sanctify us, now just look in the mirror when you go home tonight. When he's able to sanctify us, think about the glory. Think about what is revealed. For a righteousness from God is revealed. Something's revealed when he sanctifies us from faith to faith. And the pattern is the same. And that's what Ephesians 2.8 establishes in Stone. It's by grace through faith, so that you don't have anything to boast. So when we see a certain righteousness, who do we give credit to? Ourselves? We, uh, we, do we become self-righteous? No, because we didn't self-sanctify. If we were able to self-sanctify, then we'd have something to boast about. We just looked at that. But we don't have anything to boast about because we don't self-sanctify ourselves. Therefore, we cannot be self-righteous. And what does it reveal? It reveals a righteousness from God that was given as a gift to you. Just like every single step from faith to faith and everything in between is all a gift to you from God. You don't do anything. That's what Paul's saying. That's why Romans 1.17 is mind-blowing. That's why like Martin Luther blew his cap on it, right? Because he's like, what is going on? He was in the era of the church saying, okay, well, you did this sin, this sin, this sin. Well, you got to do, you know, we pay this much for this sin and this much for this sin and 42 of these and 68 of those and, and then you're okay. You can buy your own sanctification. That's self-sanctification. That's religion. And Martin Luther said, this is craziness. And so he nailed these things on the, on the church in Germany, right? That whole scene. It's the same thing, folks. It's the same thing he's probably delivering some of you from. Just of a different sort. Who knows what you have little... Who knows what little protocol you might have in your back pocket? Who knows what little religion you might have been living in all these years? Who knows? That's between you and the Lord. But he has me teaching these things for a reason. Amen? All right, I'll see you Sunday. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of doing this thing together, learning your word, studying your word. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name.
By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.